You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number four, seven, six. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoor Station for the first in a fresh new series of interviews with interesting outdoors people. And in this show, we have a real treat for you with someone who has achieved outdoor nirvana. Yes, 40 days and 40 nights of unplugged outdoor solitude. However, before we come on to that, I just wanted to briefly mention a Kickstarter campaign which I've recently stumbled upon, which could solve that never-ending problem of lightweight foldable camp footwear which doesn't take up any space in your pack. It's a subject I know I've thrashed out with Lee and Tony many times while walking across Scotland, trying to agree on a simple solution for a lightweight camp shoe or footbed to wear around camp to rest your feet. It's called the Nebos Ultralights, N-E-B-O-S Ultralights, and the campaign ends on the 27th of September 2018, so not long to go. There's a link on the outdoorstation.co.uk webpage and it's currently underfunded. However, I've put my name down and I just thought it might be of interest to other outdoor listeners too. But on with the show. Now, how many times have you dreamed about finding an outdoor place where you could totally unplug from everything and everyone? An island, maybe, where you are the only human inhabitant. No neighbours, just wildlife. For, say, 40 days and 40 nights. Could you cope without power, TV, modern facilities and Facebook? Could you cope with just your own company? Would you be scared at night? What would you do if something went wrong? Well, my guest is artist Katie Tun, who did just that. She set off from the Isle of Skye in April 2018 to spend 40 days and 40 nights in total solitude on a remote Scottish island. However, as you'll hear, it all didn't quite go to plan. Now, as well as being an artist, Katie is a conservationist an Ordnance Survey Get Outside champion, and she has a blog, is on Instagram, and there's a YouTube channel as well. And all the links to these will give you pictures and videos to support this story, and they can be found over on the outdoorstation.co.uk podcast page. Now, over to Katie to start the story. The reason why I wanted to go away to the islands, they're called the Chantiles, and uh, I can actually see them from my house on Sky. They're these little, tiny little faded peaks, like on the on the edge of the sea. And um, I think we've all we've all had that feeling of life and society just enclosing in, and you know, all this screen time, and we've got bills to pay, and we've got emails pinging all the time and so I wanted to go over there and just get some space and get some clarity and I think in our modern world we're so removed from the natural environment and I think this is the reason why we've got so many problems in terms of looking after it because we don't realize how precious it is 
And so I wanted to go and spend time with nature and with wildlife. And it was, it was a kind of escapism, really. Um, I moved to I moved to Sky about four years ago and expected that to be an escapism. I expected it to be completely different from London, which it is. But it's actually a very vibrant and bustling community up here. So I didn't get that wild kind of quiet peace that I expected. So uh, going to the islands was the next step. So going back a stage then, why did you choose Sky when you were in London? Well, I, so I chose Sky because mainly because it's easy to get to and from. I've got elderly grandparents in the south of England and I need, I wanted the island lifestyle, but with the ability to get home in emergencies. And it's just so beautiful up here. I think if anyone, anyone's been up to the islands and the highlands, you can see why, why that is so special. It's just spectacular. You feel, you look out the window and there's an eagle and a rainbow and mountains and it's, it's almost unreal how beautiful it is up here. So for me, coming up to Sky, it was only supposed to be six months. And then I did six months in the winter and I thought, right, well, I can't just do six months. So I did another six months until the summer. And then I thought, well, I'll stay a little bit longer. And of course, then it led to me being here permanently. Hmm. I know you're an artist, but is there mm-hmm. any particular medium that you specialise in or does the area inspire you to do different things with different materials? Well, I, when I came up here, I was actually working mostly in portraiture. I was doing military portraits and also um, equestrian portraits, which is really good fun. But I worked out that I was I was in my studio and I had my back to the window and I was working on these portraits, really painstaking portraits. And I thought, what am I doing not looking out the window? So my whole art practice has completely changed. And I've gone from that to um, large scale abstract pieces. And the idea is that they reflect the colours of the sea and the patterns of the geology around here. And they're, they're quite, um, they're, they're trying to capture the mood of the place rather than be really representational, which was a really good fun for me, a whole a whole change. But it's it's kind of echoed the way that my lifestyle's also changed whilst being up here. Yeah, I should imagine it's a bit different from Kensington High Street. <laughs> it is a little bit. I wish that I lived in Kensington High Street when I was in London, though. I was, I was Brixton and uh, South London all the way. Oh, you spoiled the, <laughs> you spoiled the image now, don't you? We'll, stop, we'll move on. So th- these islands then, I've never heard of them. Are they inhabited or how did you sort of get permission to go there? How, do, how does it all work? So they're uninhabited islands. They've been uninhabited for about the last hundred years. Um, there's still evidence of the old settling and the, the the communities there. And actually, the place where I stayed was absolutely fascinating because it was a little, almost like a little cove, a little bay, and it had evidence of um, Iron Age roundhouses, Bronze Age roundhouses. It had um, some structures from the Middle Ages and some old Victorian structures, which was fascinating i didn't want to touch anything obviously (laughs) to not mess it up so there's all this history on those islands but they're uninhabited now they're mostly inhabited by seabirds seabirds and seals and um they're used for tourism mostly there's a few sheep on there um but mostly they're uninhabited they're owned by the nicholson family who very kindly let me go and stay um although their idea is they they want to share these islands with anyone who wants to go there so you don't have to ask for permission you don't have to um, book ahead or pay you they want anyone who who appreciates the islands to go and enjoy them which is lovely and uh, I was very lucky that they let me enjoy them for such a long amount of time. So were you aware of them 
when you moved to Sky or did you slowly become aware of them because they were on your horizon? Um, I I had no idea these islands existed until I moved here. As with most places in Scotland, you look out to sea and there's all these different little rocky islands and it takes a while to get to know what they are or what's on them. And these were, to me, these were just three slightly larger islands just on the horizon. So I had no idea what they were. But when you live here, you talk about this happened in this place and this boat wreck in you know the Middle Ages happened here and all these kind of things. So they just slowly began to dawn on me. And the, the amount of wildlife there is there made them especially attractive. Although when I was looking for an island to stay on, I was looking for anywhere, but these ones seem to keep coming up and eventually I chose to stay there. I have it in my mind that you're on the sort of the north or the northwest coast of Skye. Would I be placing you correctly? Yep, you're right. I'm very much in the north. Would that be uh, near uh, Rubahunish? Right near Rubahunish, yeah. Rubahunish. That's where we finished. Uh, we finished our walk, and we we could. Um, I can relate to the weather up there is pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a personality in itself. The weather. Fantastic. Okay, you 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 sought permission, or you didn't mean permission, but you sought it anyway. By the sound of it, mm-hmm. um, what did you know apart from the the history? It was did you know there was water on the island? Did you know you were going to if you did fish or whatever mm-hmm. for? For food, what what were your preparations before you went? Well, I did think about visiting the islands and scoping it out before beforehand, um, but actually, I wanted the excitement of the new to turn up and see what was there. Luckily, because because there have been people living there previously, I knew that there would be water, and I was very lucky to find a, a really clear stream. And there's there's different places that you can get water from, um, but I, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I went to a place where that hasn't been inhabited for a really long time. Um, as opposed to there's a one of the islands has a little bossy which is inhabitable, um, and some people do go and stay there. But um, yeah, it's I didn't know what to expect, and it was the excitement of finding out. And I mean, it's going to be cold, it's going to be windy, it's going to be wet. There will be water somewhere, so it was just a case of just just seeing it and winging it really. And what? preparation were you considering then with regards uh, equipment if you wanted to obviously experience the adventure and not be too planned at the same time you obviously packed what you felt you would need could you give us an idea of of the range of things that you you needed and perhaps any comments you might have when it came to the fact you actually didn't need it at all okay so i took um i took five bags of five different bags of stuff so one bag was all food um, I didn't take any fishing tackle or anything like that because I actually wanted to do it um, with no animal products. So I actually had a vegan lifestyle when I was there because I wanted to make a as small an impact as possible. Um, so there was one bag of food. I had one bag of sleeping stuff. So that was my um, sleeping bags and a hot water bottle. You, you can't go on an island without a hot water bottle. Um, I had another bag of tools. So that was a, a saw or a hammer, nails. Um, bits of string, things that you you need to potentially build a shelter, or if you had if you had to build a, a water carrying system or something like that, um, and then a bag of clothes. And I I pretty much knew what I needed from the start because I'm, I'm used to sleeping out and I'm used to um, spending time living off grid. 
so luckily I didn't need to take too much stuff with me and I expected not to take a lot back with me um, but I ended up filling all my bags with rubbish that was found on the beach <laughs> so I think I came back with more than I actually went out with. Uh, that's interesting so so really compared to a weekend or a week's outdoor activity you obviously by the sound of it just took a few extra tools and and items which might be useful as you say for shelter building but otherwise uh, I guess just a few layers of clothes just in case it got really cold and really wet. Mm -hmm. Yeah I I wanted to make it as basic as possible so I didn't want to make it so basic that I'd spend every day foraging and looking for food but I wanted to make it basic enough that I was really paring down to to live in the environment and to, to be at one with nature. I wanted to, to have as little uh, stuff, I suppose, as possible, because I think we live with so much stuff around us, and I certainly do. I'm an absolute hoarder. So it was nice to just try something else and see how little we really need. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to, to simplify and pare back what it's like to live in these areas. Oh, you're so in tune. I'm really, really enjoying this. Um, <laughs> um, but yet we do surround ourselves with stuff. And here am I surrounded by myself with recording gear and mixing desks and computers. And obviously you have a YouTube channel, KTT, mm-hmm. uh, and you took some equipment with you as well because you were recording the event. So it's a bit of a bit of a hard one, isn't it? You don't want to have stuff, but there are stuff that you sort of take with you to share it. Oh, exactly. Well, like, the thing is, I didn't want to take any any tech equipment at all. And then I had friends who said, well, but if you miss something and you haven't recorded it, then you're going to kick yourself. And I thought, well, OK, but it's a really fine line. And at some points, I wish that I hadn't taken anything. And then at other other times I look through my videos and I think, thank goodness I had that. But it is a, it's a it just shows that actually, however much you try and disconnect, you're never really disconnected. And however much I tried to be away from human contact, there was always something in the back of my head thinking, well, I'm going to tell so-and-so about this or, oh, I've only got two days before I get back to you know, hot water or something like that. So it's it's a balance. I'd love to do it, actually, with nothing at all, no cameras um, and just, just do it for myself completely. I mean, of course, I'd have to take emergency equipment, um, which I actually ended up using. So I'm glad I took that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. You never you're never really apart however much you try and make yourself apart no it's, i think it's a reflection of the modern world unfortunately I've, I've read numerous reports which all seem to conclude that actually we spend more time recording uh, the experience rather than enjoying the experience these days which is just a sad uh, a sad reflection on on modern life i guess oh definitely although one thing that i that i was quite pleased about and i think a lot of the people who i've spoken to since aren't so pleased about is the fact that i didn't take a nice camera so i didn't take a dslr which meant that every time the birds came out or there were seals or something, I never got a good picture because I knew I couldn't get a good picture from a GoPro, which actually was so freeing because I think if I did have my good camera, I would have been crawling up those rocks and waiting for hours to just try and get the perfect shot. So, yeah, we do see things through a screen and I don't think we we don't appreciate things when we see everything through a screen and we're trying to show, maybe it's a social thing, trying to share it in a way but at the same time, it's putting a barrier between us and the initial experience. Did you have to find a, a fisherman to take you across? Or how far away is it physically, time-wise, from, from where you set out from home? So it takes about an hour to go on a on a rib to get there fast from Stornoway. Um, there's a, a lovely man called Joe who runs trips out there. He also runs uh, trips to go and see the birds and things during the summer. 
So I went out with Joe and his father, Charles, who caught me a fish on the way in. I um, I didn't didn't tell them that I was doing the whole thing as a vegan, but I very much appreciated my present of a fish for my first supper there. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it's quite a long way to get to. You can see it from Sky and you can see it from Harris and Lewis, but it's, it's interesting to get to. The currents are very um, troublesome. You get a lot of whirlpools and eddies and things. So you have to get the right person to take you over. And uh, luckily I, I had a man in the know. Excellent. And and did he have knowledge of old stories or anything like that about the place you were going to? Did he fill your fill your mind with any sort of anticipation? <laughs> he he did fill my mind with anticipation, but I think he was slightly more bemused at why I would want to go and stay out there for such a long period of time. But then at the same time, he knows he loves those islands just as much as I do. And I think his his father Charles was saying that every time they go, they see something new and something amazing. And when I was on the boat with them, at one point we saw eight eagles above, and it was just mad. I mean, you get excited over one or two eagles here on Sky, so eight was just incredible. So he he knows the stories, he knows the way that the islands work. So it's 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 nice to be with someone who actually has the islands in their blood, in their in their everyday life. You you said about emergency equipment. Uh, we'll come on mm-hmm. to that uh, and the actual story a bit later on. But were you able to use mobile phones or did you have to take anything specific to get coverage over there? I took um, a GPS spot tracker with me uh, to, to log in where I was. I took an emergency mobile phone and I took a VHF radio and flares. So I was, I was really kitted up with everything just in case. Um, but it was the GPS spot tracker, which I use daily. So, of course, my family were slightly worried about me going going away to these islands on my own. So I, I promised that I'd spot check with them in the morning and the night. And that means just pressing a button and it just sends them a little a little email or a text message. And it says, I'm at this location and I'm OK. Right. So that was my main that was my main safety equipment. And it's absolutely brilliant piece of kit worth every penny. So you landed on the, I presume, in the beach. Uh, what were your first thoughts that, that went through your mind when you obviously hit land again? Um, the first thoughts that went through my mind when I got there, we, we actually landed on some rocks. There's a natural harbour near to where I wanted to stay. And apart from dragging all the bags on, onto the rocks and up the shore, which was a bit of a, was a, bit of a task, but um, it was just a wow look at this place and you get that excitement of being somewhere new like when you go on holiday and you've you've gone to a new city and everything is new and the excitement of finding out like where does this path go or where does this you know what what flowers are here what birds are here and that was really exciting to go and explore the the archaeology for the first time because I knew there were these bronze and iron age roundhouses but I'd never seen them before so it was great to go up and have a look and they're so perfectly preserved that was just really exciting. Just the thrill of the new and the curiosity was fantastic. I'm curious to know, actually, did you also have that weird feeling that you all get when you go somewhere remote was, I better keep an eye on my stuff just in case it disappears? <laughs> Do you know what? I didn't. I think the only time that I was worried about my stuff disappearing was getting all my bags up above the tide line before the tide came back in. Um, because I live in the sky, we're, we're, quite, we're quite chilled out about security up here, so... I'm actually I'm one of those people who has to go down to London and remember not to leave her phone on the dashboard and stuff like that. You get quite complacent. Oh, you you definitely you've definitely become a local then. 
<laughs> I think so. It doesn't take long for it to get under your skin. <laughs> So we, we we have lots of all different types of interested listeners that listen to these range of podcasts. And obviously we have the, the long distance hikers, the backpackers, the writers. We have a lot of bushcraft people as well. So I'd be interested in in your discipline, if you like. Did you sort of force yourself, right, okay, I've got to get a shelter sorted. I've got to get this sorted. I've got to get that sorted. Um, what was the weather like, actually? What time of year? This was uh, May, June, wasn't it, thinking about it? Uh, no, it was the 1st of April. So it was uh, it was a wee bit chilly. I, the first few mornings I woke up with frost on everything and ice and goodness knows what. So, yeah, the weather was interesting. As as like everywhere in the Hebrides, you've got sunshine one minute and then all you have to do is blink and you open them again and you're in a storm or a gale or goodness knows what. Um, so when I got there, I thought, right, the first thing I need to do is I need to get a dry space. Um, so I went to, there's an old sheep fank, which is one of the old places where they they get the sheep for, for um, clipping or whatever. And there was one wall and I thought, right, I'm just going to put up a tarp against this wall, make it really basic, keep it really open. And luckily within maybe about three minutes of getting everything safe and covered, the, the rains came in. So uh, that was that was the first job well done. And, um, and then the next job, of course, was looking for water. So going up the stream to make sure there's no dead sheep or anything that I might not want to drink. Uh, so I filled up my water, got my stores out, and, yeah, settled in. Settled in with the rain, so um, just sat and watched and came to terms with where I was, really. And did you take a stove with you, or do, were you going to rely on a, a little wood stove or a little wood, wood fire? I actually took three methods of cooking. So um, there aren't any trees on the island, so I took some wood with me. I took a few logs with me for making little celebratory bonfires. Uh, so the first night I made a little fire with my logs and on the last night I did the same. And then for regular cooking, I had a Kelly kettle and also a little gas stove, um, which I used about half and half each time because obviously a Kelly kettle is great. It doesn't use up fuel. You can use whatever's around you. And then the gas stove's just very easy for heating up things like you know, uh, meals that are already cooked, pouch meals and things. So it's April time. Just as an overview, roughly the the length of the forty days or the length of period you were there. What what was did the the weather average out at? So just to give people a feel for the type of conditions that you experienced across those few weeks. Well, the weather the weather was interesting. I got there and it was it was cold, but there was a beautiful sunshine. The rains came in and there were showers, but it was it was nice. I'm, I'm I live on Sky. I'm, I'm used to rain and wet and chills and gales and all that kind of thing. Um, but I think I would have had the my island weather the other way around because it went from absolutely beautiful, crisp, cold mornings to rain. And I had towards the end, I had two weeks of constant rain, not one day without rain. And when you're on an island, it's not just rain. It's upwards rain, sideways rain, downwards rain, rain that seems to come from nowhere. And it's it's just constant with gales and stuff. So it was, 
it was interesting. They, the the island didn't really uh, didn't feel particularly welcoming in the last two weeks, and everything was damp. It was one of those situations where you wear clothes to dry them off, but then you get damp like straight after anyway. So it doesn't really it doesn't really make a difference. You've just got to grow some webbed webbed feet and and get on with it really yes i i hear what you're saying regarding the 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 weather it's the wind actually is the worst part rather than the rain isn't it it's the wind and the constant battle that uh, tends to make you depressed Uh, but certainly living in those conditions at several weeks at a time it can be tough going so you you woke up your first morning um Mm -hmm. obviously full of the full of the beans Mm -hmm. and the joys of spring were you like a kid in a sweetie shop you just couldn't decide what to go and do first uh, well, actually, interestingly, I got there and um, and I was suffering from a really bad chest infection. Um, so my first days, I actually took it easy because I thought the worst thing to do would be to get there and then get so ill that I'd have to go off in the next couple of days. So I, I, I took it fairly easy and paced myself because I thought, well, I have the whole time anyway. Um, but it was just so exciting to wake up and you get that moment in the morning where you go, where am I? And then you just think, wow, this is me. This is my island. And I remember getting up, making myself a cup of tea and sitting. The sun came out. It was fairly chilly, a bit of frost and ice overnight. Um, But I looked out to sea and as I did, a couple of grey seals popped up in the bay right in front of me. And they looked at me, obviously wondering what on earth has appeared in their home. And I looked at them and I just thought, this is the best place ever and there were oyster catchers and there were all these different birds beginning to come in. It was just it's just magical, really. As you're talking, I must ask people if they are sitting at the computer, do go to YouTube and look at Katie T on the on the YouTube channel. Is there anywhere else they can actually see some images and pictures while we're talking? Um, well, you could potentially look at my Instagram, which is um, at Katie spelt with an I E T U N N Katie Tun. But that's that's it at the moment. I'm afraid I'm quite a new YouTuber, so I'm just putting up all my rough and unedited videos, my diary videos from the trip. But uh, I'm hoping to get more up soon. And that's the attraction of them. I have to say, the, the few that I've watched, you, you, you capture the solitude uh, very well, just as you say, with the GoPro and the wide-angle lens. Uh, it does give you that feeling of, gosh, there isn't anything else around. You are on your own. And I take it, by the sound of it, obviously with the experience you have of Sky anyway, you didn't feel at any time apprehensive about yourself there. No, not at all. It's really strange. You don't feel... I suppose because I'm quite used to it, I actually almost feel safer in a situation like that because there aren't any people. When I was walking down the high street in in Brixton at 1pm at night when I was a student, then I felt nervous. But actually, you know, what's there to be frightened of? Maybe, well, nothing. And there, there are supposed to be ghosts on the Chantiles. There's all these ghost stories. And I just sat there and I thought, come on, then. I want to meet you. I want to hear your stories. Unfortunately, it never happened. Um, maybe because I am a bit sceptical about that kind of thing. But but no, I felt I felt safe as anything, and loneliness just wasn't an issue. You don't have a chance to be lonely when there's so much wildlife around you and so much going on. Well, yes, I mean that's that that in itself is a is a long answer to a question, I'm sure. But I mean, once you've recovered from your from your uh, infection, where did you start? <laughs> so, oh, I don't know the exact measurements, but it it takes probably about thirty minutes to walk from one of the islands from north to south. Um, so there's there's three islands. One's um, called Eileen. Oh, my my Gaelic pronunciation is terrible. So if anyone can speak Gaelic and they're listening to this, I'm really sorry. Eileen um, uh, Muir, which is means um, mother island, and that's a completely separate one. It's like a large plateau of rock. 
Um, and then there are two other islands and one's um, Home Island and Rough Island. And I stayed on Rough Island. Home Island is the one with the Bothy on. And they're connected by a very thin little causeway at the bottom of a very steep hill. Um, and they're, they're all roughly the same size, but completely different in character. Um, of course, I'm, I'm biased. I love Rough Island, but that's because that's where I stayed. Um, but they're, they're, they're amazing. If anyone gets a chance to visit them, I, I'd highly recommend it. Just the life there is fantastic and the big precipitous cliffs and things like that. So if it takes you about 30 minutes to walk the length of it, uh, what, mm-hmm. 10, 15 minutes to walk the width, as it were? Perhaps about, about maybe about half an hour to walk the width as well. It's hard to say because they're they're very hilly and some parts are boggy. So you're, it's not really a, a straight, easy walk. Um, but no, pro- probably about maybe, should we say, 40 minutes up and down and maybe half an hour from side to side. Did you have a sort of a plan for your, for your weeks? The first week you're going to do this, the second week you're going to do that? Or did you just sort of just hoof it each day? Uh, I I kind of worked it out by each day. I looked at the weather and I thought, right, what's what's this saying to me today? If it was a a bad day, I'd stay in and I'd chop kindling under the shelter. Or if it was a good day, I'd maybe go to the other end of the island. And the winds actually really changed what I did. So the seal colony is in a, quite a sheltered bit. So if it was really windy, I'd go over there to try and get away from the, rin- the wind for a day. Um, but again, the idea was to not have anything to do. I like a lot of people, I live by a to-do list and I'm constantly thinking, all right, I need to do this. I need to do this. And so I, I didn't want to have anything to do there. And I wanted to almost make it a mental challenge more than a physical one, because what happens when you clear out everything that you need to do in your head and you really have nothing to focus on apart from your own thoughts or what's happening around you? Um, one thing which I, I found interesting is that there seem to be two people who, two types of people who ask me about my trip. Um, one type goes, well, what do you do every day? And then the other type will say, um, wow, I'd love to do that. And I think, I think that's the difference. And I, I say like, um, if you go to the Grand Canyon or if you go on safari, you don't ask someone, what do they do all day? You just get that it's such an amazing thing to look at. And I think we've got that in the UK. You can almost go on safari in these backyard places, really. Um, and whether it's, say, looking at the eagles, which is still pretty special, or whether it's just going into your backyard and looking at the bugs and the butterflies and the birds and things. I tend to find that when I go hiking for several weeks or just generally away travelling, etc., it usually takes me about a week to ten days to unplug from, as you say, all the things that are floating around the back of your mind of things you need to set up at home or direct debits or jobs you need to do and whatever and actually get into the moment of of where you are and and settling in but by the sound of it you you settled in fairly soon from that point of view i know you've 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 described about being part of the moment but can you describe at all about how it actually made you feel yeah the fit the feeling of going going there is just a I mean, it's, it, sound, it sounds like such an obvious thing to say. And anyone who walks the hills or likes spending time outdoors would say the same thing. It's just that freedom, that escape. And I've had um, a few problems over the last year uh, with my mental health and confidence and things like that. And it just makes you forget all of that. You're just there in the moment. And one thing that I found really strange was 
after a certain amount of time, it was maybe about a week or so, I noticed that I was becoming really creative. It was almost like um, the lid had been taken off my mind and just these ideas were spilling out, which I've, I've never experienced before. I've, I've found peace whilst walking and I've enjoyed weekends at Bothy's and just being away from everything. But it's, I almost found like a new level of peace. And it, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's almost like a spiritual thing um which which was interesting for me because the area where i stayed there was a hermit who stayed there historically um like there are hermits staying all over the hebrides um back i don't know when it was 400 years ago or whatever um but i almost began to think that i could see why people chose these places for that solitude for that um reflection and contemplation I can I can equate to that. That sounds like a very good description, actually, of the next level of calm. I think that, that people go through, uh, and as you say, rightly say, that the, the going back through history, the people that choose to join um, monasteries or, or um, nunneries or whatever to 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 calm themselves and calm their mind and actually detach completely from their life outside of those particular four walls. Mm, yeah, it's, it's it's a really interesting experience and. I suppose when people historically did that, that was in a time when they didn't have all these pressures like um, screens and social media and watching politics and things. So I wonder if that's almost a bigger leap for us now to do it or to attempt to do it. Well, I think this is a great conversation and perhaps this will open the mind to, to people to consider doing something similar themselves. By the sound of it, you, as you sort of describe, you, you sort of meandered through your time there. So I don't think there's anything particular I can ask you that you can share with us. Or perhaps there's a particular story that notable moment of some in some way that you'd like to share before we actually get on to how it all came to an end. Um, oh, it's hard to hard to say. The whole experience was a... It was almost a gradual accumulation of learning things. So, for example, when I first got there, I, I know nothing about birds. I, I feel like it was completely wasted on me. There's going to be birders out there who would kill for a chance to have done what I did. But I got there and I didn't know about birds. And I thought, right, well, that's an oyster catcher. That's this bird. Didn't know how to recognize their calls or anything. And then a week later, I thought I'd listen in bed and I thought, right, well, that's the oyster catcher. And and that's the pipit. And I'd start to recognize their calls. And then another week later, I would think, OK, well, that's the oyster catcher feeding. And that's the bonksies going after the eagles. And that's the crows doing this. And you actually you almost become familiar with it. And it's that's it, it wasn't a one individual experience. It was a gradual learning about the place and becoming part of the place and realizing how much it had to show. And I think over time. It's almost like it was a like a, a shy being in a way that the more you got to know it, the more you spent time with the island and the more hours you put into appreciating it, the more it opened up and showed you how it worked. And you, I, I saw different species every day and different flowers popped up in the morning. I'd go to, be, I'd go to bed one night and the next morning I'd wake up and there'd be a, a galaxy of yellow flowers outside where I was sleeping. So it was it was extraordinary and there were there were special moments and days which stood out but they were all part of one so for example um the wrens the wrens were my favorite thing and they'd they because i i slept in such an out uh, kind of open shelter they got quite used to me and they they they'd stand at the end of my bed or they'd relax on my cooking equipment or something like that 
And uh, it was just little tiny moments like that over and over again, which made it feel really special. The home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for outdoors people everywhere. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions, why not drop us a line, either on Facebook or directly to our email address, info at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Did you have any similar sort of emotions or experiences or awareness when you actually visited the ancient settlements at all about their lifestyle and what what they must have lived through and how they existed on a daily basis, bear, bearing in mind the experience that you had you had undertaken in the you know in the first few weeks? That's a lovely question. Um, well, I, I I tried as hard as I could to try and feel what it would be like to be someone living and working on the shants properly um but the black houses that are there now they've got these beautifully built walls but they've got no roofs and so i i I used to lie down in them and look up to the sky and see if i could almost feel the history and absorb the history but i was never going to get close to it because these old black houses they had these roofs on they were called black houses because they were covered in soot and they were smoky inside inside they have a cow or some animals which had the dung heap on one side of the house and the human living area. So as hard as I tried, I just couldn't quite get the right feel because I was I was there in the sunshine and I was there in this airiness for fun. And I didn't however hard I try, I was I was there and I was enjoying every moment. So I couldn't quite see how difficult it would be. Um, but then at the same time the the place where I, I lived, I, I would fetch water in the morning and I would go down to the shore and I would wash. And what was interesting about that for me was potentially my paths. I was making these paths every day and these paths might have been the same paths that people made 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And that was really exciting to follow these timeless actions of collecting water, of washing, of of um, foraging, getting bits of seaweed and stuff. And I wondered in some ways whether whether these little paths of trodden grass were the same as, as ones that might have been there before. And it, it seems quite, their lives seem quite relatable in a way. I think perhaps because it is the house and the farmland outside, which is quite similar to the way a lot of people live up here. Obviously, it's, a, it's not the same, but you can relate to that that way of life it's not so alien like the roundhouses it's not so far away that you can't imagine what it would be like of course i mean everybody had to do the basics they still had to get food they have to get water they have to wash and and they have to move around so you know you were obviously reducing your activities down to those basic tasks and basic needs so you as you say you're definitely on a parallel to it anyway it's been fascinating talking to you let's move on to to what happened now i don't want to don't know what the full story is but obviously <laughs> uh you've hinted that that something happened that required some emergency so do tell us that the full story oh i crick i cringe talking about this so about a third of the way in i hit my head and um i was absolutely fine i had a had a, a big graze on my head. I had grazes on my knees and stuff, just as a silly thing on, on flat ground with just a few rocks on it. Um, and I thought, okay, well, that's fine. I'll have something to eat. have lots of sugar. I'll sit down, take some painkillers. And I was absolutely fine until four days later, I got this intense throbbing um, where I'd where the, the scab had been. Of course, it had come off and healed by then. 
And I thought, well, okay, well, this isn't ideal, but I'll just just keep going with it. And at that time, I was building a shelter. So rather than using the rocks that were around me, because I didn't want to um, upset the archaeology, I was going down to the shore and carrying rocks up from the shore. And um, every time I picked up a rock, I felt this the, the pain in my head intensify. And to me, that felt like it was a, a pressure thing. So I started to, to wonder a bit and worry a bit. And um, I thought, right, I'll take all my painkillers, <laughs> every type, and see what happens. And the next day, it was just as bad, if not worse. And I thought, right, I don't know what to do. When you're on your own, you can't turn around and say, do you think this is the right idea? Or, and unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, I'd made a promise to my mum that if I injured myself or if anything went wrong, I wouldn't brave it out. I would actually admit that I needed some help. And uh, if I did, if I didn't have a loving family at home, I probably wouldn't have got it checked out. But um, I ended up having to speak to the Coast Guard who put me onto the um, a hospital in Aberdeen and the doctor recommended that I get a CT scan and get it checked out, which was as bad as the pain was, the uh, knocked pride and the embarrassment was probably more than more than that. Really, that was that was the worst thing. And having to ask for help and to having have to get people to come and help me was was something that I was really disappointed about. And I should imagine also there's the whole packing everything up as well earlier than you anticipated. Uh, and did was it did a helicopter come or was it the same boat to to pick you up? Uh, they actually sent a lifeboat. Um, actually, I, did, I didn't pack anything up because I thought, right, I'm going to get the CT scan, get sorted, make sure it's not a bleed on the brain, and then I'm coming straight back. So I made sure everything was waterproofed. And because I because I wanted to, um, uh, yeah, I, w- I wanted to go straight back. And actually, when I when I did get out of hospital, I went straight down to the pier and waited for a boat to get me back. Unfortunately, with the weather, it took me three days to get back. Um, but it was it was a difficult decision to make. But the Coast Guard, once he'd had the recommendations from the, the doctor, um, the Coast Guard said, I'm sorry, we're sending someone to come and get you. And I said, well, can I have another six hours and we'll see how it will be then? And the Coast Guard said, no, because if you collapse in six hours, there's absolutely no one there to, to help you. And so this boat got sent for me, which I was absolutely mortified because I was – Apart from this really intense pain, I was absolutely fine in myself, just disappointed and frustrated at my own clumsiness. Um, and they came and I, I made them coffee and stuff, which they didn't need because, of course, they've got this beautiful boat. Um, so it was it was a very awkward situation and it was it put me in my place a bit. I think it, it almost kind of it's almost kind of a good thing to knock your ego. But. I, I, I still feel very guilty at the fact that I needed help and I needed to ask people for help when they could have been doing something else. And I presume the scan was clear, was it? Uh, the scan was clear. I had overnight observation um, and then sent away with uh, painkillers. So I had concussion, um, but luckily it was only concussion. It wasn't anything too bad. Well, that's that's good to hear. So did you actually make it back to the island then? I did, yep. So... This is about a third of the way in. So I, unfortunately, there were storms when I was in hospital. And so I had to wait three days. But I was like a puppy dog at Stornoway Harbour. And every morning I'd call up Joe and I'd say, Joe, can we go today? And he'd say, nope, nope, the weather's not good enough. And I'd call him in the afternoon and he'd say, nope, the weather's not good enough. So as soon as the weather was good enough, I, I went back. Um, 
it was it was one of the best feelings I've ever had going back to the island and um yeah I I, I just couldn't couldn't leave it even though obviously this thing had happened but it could have happened I could have given myself concussion in the same way hill walking or being even out in the garden or out in the front front lawn so yeah I mean it's 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 the one thing that us outdoor people have to accept isn't it that the you know the hills the mountains will will still be there tomorrow uh, you just got to uh, you've just got to accept that uh, prudence is a better part of valor um so well, you you returned i presume you felt wonderful when you actually sat back and the boat departed you were thinking right i'm i'm back in my in my moment did it take very long to get tuned in again uh i i tuned back in straight away actually when we were going there it was quite funny the the waves were horrendous it was probably the weather that we shouldn't have gone out in but poor joe i think i badgered him for so long that he was like right let's just get this girl back to the islands and (laughs) and shut her up um and we were on this boat which was slamming down on the waves so my head was absolutely killing me despite all the painkillers you know strong hospital painkillers i was on but when we got there we noticed a few little birds down by one of the rocks and it turned out that the puffins had come in so when i first got there there were no puffins and it's this time when every day a new species arrives to start nesting and to start breeding. And when we got there, the puffins had arrived whilst I was in hospital. Um, so that was really exciting. And then they dropped me off and there were puffins next to me. There were eagles above me. There were seals in front of me leaping, literally leaping out of the water chasing fish. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this is this is incredible. And I think I, I actually I made a, a video and I was, I'm crying in it. It was a bit bit silly but it just meant so much to me to be back and I don't think I realized how much the islands had got under my skin until I got back to them and was the the last few weeks uh uneventful compared to everything that had happened so far it was more of the same um so the last few weeks it rained my my welcome back to the islands was rain upon rain upon rain and gales which was interesting but um I'd, I'd started building a shelter because my initial tarp shelter had got a bit um, rough and cracked uh, within the, the first week's gales. So the second half of my trip was fixing up the shelter and then just really just enjoying it and trying to keep keep as dry as possible and watching the puffins, watching the shags, watching all the animals starting to nest and starting to appear. Um it all went so quickly, though. It felt because I've spent time living off grid because I lived off off grid for a year previously. Um, all that felt quite natural. So it really was just almost an educational trip, just learning things and just watching, really, for the rest of the time. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, just in my mind now, with that story and the weather, you knew that an end date was coming. That presumably somebody was coming to pick you up on a certain day, weather permitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you feel the last few days? I was, I say panicking, panicking is probably not the right word, but I was desperate to see everything as much as possible and as quickly as I could. So I was making sure that I was using up the last of my wood and having beach bonfires. I was trying to capture every single view in my mind and walk to every little bit of the island. And of course, however long you have, you're never going to have the amount of time you want to do everything that you want to do. Um, and actually, I left uh, very kindly with permission of the, the Nicholson family. I left the shelter up there. So I'm hoping to go back and use it again at some point. But it was it was sad. I, I became very emotionally attached to that island. And 
each of the individual animals which I saw every day you get to know them and yeah it was it was it was a hard place to leave and even harder because my boat actually arrived early which is why I had the 37 days and not the 40 days um because the the boats are so um dependent on good weather that bad weather was coming in and so I had to leave a couple of days early which was again quite frustrating so uh I've got, I've got to, I've just got to go back and do this again. I think that's the, that's the takeaway from that. I think there might be a queue of people joining you actually from following this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole experience was very inspirational, obviously on, on all sorts of levels, not only the wildlife and, and the vision and, and the artistry and the creativity as well. But that was, as you say, back in, in April, how mm-hmm. has just, out, just out of interest, how has life been for you since? Have you found anything to touch the same level of of inspiration or or are you just desperately holding on to that memory i think it's it's something which i find quite sad that you come back to reality so to speak and you have this amazing energy that's like wow i've just been somewhere amazing and then it it can fade quite quickly and suddenly everything's normal again within a week um apart from these amazing stories and actually that's one reason why i am glad that i took a gopro and did record and i I wrote a diary because every now and again i I dip back in and i think wow that was amazing although that said i'm actually going back to the islands next week um but this time not on my own i'm going with the owner who's invited me out and uh, i'm actually going to stay in a place with a roof in the bothy so So that will be absolute luxury for me. (laughs) My thanks to Katie for joining me. Now, although you didn't hear it, uh, this was my first interview in 12 years when my recording equipment actually broke during the session. So thank you once again, Katie, for your endless patience. The technical issues also meant... I forgot to ask my usual killer last question, which is, of all the things I could have asked you, what should I have asked you? However, I did email it to her, and she stated that actually she wanted to do it all over again, except this time without food, shelter or tools. Now that would make an excellent follow-up podcast. So just to finish, a quick reminder to everyone to join my newsletter if you haven't already. If you want to hear my forthcoming plans about live streaming and how to get involved if you wish to. So until the next one, folks, take care out there. Autumn's coming. Wrap up warm. And bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk.